Thank you that you have given to us the blessed opportunity of fellowshipping together with the common cause of Jesus Christ in our hearts. We thank you for this beautiful day which you have given and for this opportunity to study the word. And I pray again that your Holy Spirit will be our guide, that he will take the word and make it real to each of our hearts. And Father, I pray that we'll be faithful to the word and that we will become more the men and women that you would have us to be. Strengthen our faith, we ask, Father. And we resist the hand of the evil one and pray that he will be unable, unable to in, uh, impact anything that is done here this morning. And we'll give you the thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll turn to Genesis chapter 44, Genesis chapter 44. I would like to read the first five verses of Genesis 44. Then he commanded his house steward, saying, Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, and his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph had told him. As soon as it was light, the men were sent away, they with their donkeys. And they had just gone out of the city and were not far off when Joseph said to his house steward, Up, follow them in, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks and which he indeed uses for divination? You have done wrong in doing this. This encounter between Joseph and his brothers may seem to you like it's really dragging on here because we've been looking at it for several weeks as we have processed through chapters 40, 41, and so forth up to now chapter 44. But you have to, of course, be remembering the fact that this took many, many months, possibly a year or more uh, in its actual uh, occurrence. And what's important here is what is happening between Joseph and his brothers. This is the key of this whole story. It has appeared to Joseph up to now that his brothers are changed men. That the 20 years that had passed since the time Joseph was sold off into Egypt by his brothers have brought about a change in these 10 men. They don't seem to be the same at all in their attitude and in their actions. As best as he can determine, they're treating his younger, his younger brother, Benjamin, very well. They are not acting towards him as they had acted towards Joseph. And Joseph is taking all this in as he watches their actions, reads their attitudes, and determines when he should make himself known to them. He's looking for that, that jealousy. It was that jealousy, of course, which sparked their sale of Joseph into Egypt. And you remember we studied that particular passage. And uh, the, the evil was in their hearts, the hatred they had towards Joseph. And he's looking for this. Is this still there? Is there still a, a germ of this in the hearts of these men? Will they turn against Benjamin as they had turned against Joseph? But Joseph, at this point, does not know whether the apparent change 
in the hearts of his brothers, or what seems to be a heart change, is genuine or is it cosmetic? Is it just a facade or have they really changed all the way to the core of their being? In order to find out, he must subject them to one more severe trial. Now, as we have talked about before a couple of weeks back, trials are not uncommon to the Christian life. We all face trials and tribulations of one sort or another. Sometimes the trials are mild and sometimes they are not. And many of us have been put through severe trials. We always have to remember that when God is behind the trial, the purpose of it is to bring good. Joseph is not subjecting his brothers to, to this trial in order to, to, to get back at them. It's not an act of retribution. It's a test to find out whether he can reveal himself, his true identity to them, and to hope that as a result of that revelation, that there will be a healing of 20 years of broken relationship here. Not only between them and Joseph, but of course, between them and God. Well, when the meal was finished, remember they were sitting at meal in Joseph's palace. They didn't want to be there, but they were there. They had no choice in the matter, and they didn't understand what was going on. But as the meal came to its climax and nothing happened to them, nothing evil happened to them, they were very, very relieved, of course. But we have to remember, through all of this, they have no idea what's going on. They cannot fathom the actions of this man, Joseph. They have no idea, of course, who he is, other than the fact he's a hard-nosed Egyptian. And they are in the dark. At the end of the meal, they are simply excused. <laughs> Joseph doesn't say, you know, well, it was good having you here. I wanted you here to find out what kind of guys you are. Nothing. Just when the meal's over, all right, you guys can go now. <laughs> and they leave. And uh, they're still wondering what is happening here. No explanation is given at all as to why they're treated this way. Certainly all of the people who come to Egypt to buy grain aren't treated to a, to a meal at the prime minister's palace. Especially with the Egyptians being as xenophobic as they were. I think to the brothers, it must have seemed that the man, remember they still think of him as the man, to the brothers, this man is either playing games with them or he's wacko. You know, one or the other. It's got to be true. And they're not sure which yet. It seems that his actions are totally capricious and as, as such, they're very unnerving. <laughs> and these guys don't know really what to do next. Well, the passage tells us that Joseph commands his steward to give to the brothers all the grain that the donkeys can carry. I mean, just load them up to the max and uh, send them on their way. Now, what about Joseph's steward here? Ever think much about him? What does he think about all of this? I mean, he's having to do all these things Joseph keeps commanding him to do. And he may not have questioned much the first time he was ordered to put the money back in the sacks, which was many, many months before. But, you know, we're coming up to this second time, and it's even more strange. Either Joseph brought his steward into his confidence 
at this time explaining what was happening. Or the steward, and this is probably more likely, was simply so accustomed to obedience that he did what he was told without questioning Joseph. I mean, what right did he have to question the man who was prime minister of Egypt? It's very probable, though, that Joseph gave him some explanation. He may have said, these men are my countrymen. They worship the same God I worship. And because they worship him, I, in honor of my God, am doing this for him. Now, that may be an explanation for why uh, the steward responded as he did. You remember back in chapter 43, verse 23, the brothers had come up to the steward. He was leading them to the palace to go for this meal. And the brothers came up to the steward and they said, look, we got this money back in our sacks. We don't know how it got there. Uh, we didn't steal it. We brought it. We were honest. We were men of integrity. And yet the money was back in our sacks. And he responded, be at ease. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I, I had your money. Remember, we noted that last time, or two weeks ago, I guess it was. And that might be the background here. He might have had that much explanation from Joseph, that these were his fellow countrymen, they worshipped the same God he worshipped, and there on behalf, therefore, on behalf of the worship of that God, I have, I have blessed these, uh, these men. Certainly, I, I really don't think at this time he has explained to the steward that, that these are his brothers. I don't think he would do that because he doesn't want any possibility for the cat to get out of the bag, as it were. Whatever the case, whether the steward knew what was going on or not, he knew what his job was. His job was to obey and do exactly as Joseph commanded him to do, and so he did. And he probably figured, when it's time, and if Joseph thinks it's appropriate, he'll tell me what I need to know. In the meantime, I just have to do it. I think it's really important that we recognize that every one of these persons was a human being just as we are, with the same kind of emotions, the same kinds of thoughts, the same kinds of concerns. We, we can't just pass over them as if they were kind of stick figures or plastic figures who, who had no role to play in all of this. You know, think about this. The scripture says absolutely nothing about it, but did Joseph, it, by his actions and his words, witness to his house steward? Did his house steward become a man who believed in the God that Joseph believed in? I mean, he was his, his closest confidant. He was the man who carried out all of Joseph's wishes. As I noted before, he probably was to Joseph what Joseph was to Potiphar. And so, uh, you know, it, that's, that's pure speculation. But knowing the character of Joseph, I think Joseph probably did share with this man faith in Yahweh. The strangest order, of course, that Joseph gave to the steward was that he put Joseph's cup into Benjamin's bag, grain bag. Now, it's important, I think, or maybe it's not terribly important, but interesting at least to note that the word translated cup here is not the standard word used for cup. For example, uh, back when we read about the, uh, the cup bearer, and Pharaoh, in chapter 40, down in verse 11, it says, Now Pharaoh's cup 
was in my hand, so I took grapes and squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and I put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. That's not the same word. The word used there is not the word used here in this particular passage. In, in chapter 40, that's the standard word used for cup in Hebrew. But the word used here might better be translated bowl. We're talking about a special drinking implement here, not just a you know, cup you might pull out of your cupboard, as it were. Joseph refers later on to this cup or this bowl being used in divination. The root word, the root Hebrew word for, that is behind this word translated bowl is also the root Hebrew word behind the word which is used for the cultic high place. And so from the same root we have this bowl and the cultic high place which probably links the two meaning this cup was a cup used in religious ceremony. It was a special cup used by Egyptians in the process of their divination. Now if the steward was not privy to Joseph's thinking, he must have wondered whether Joseph is losing his grasp. You want me to put your special religious bowl in this guy's sack? Okay, <laughs> whatever you say. He did as he was told, but if he didn't know why, he probably thought uh, Joseph had been out in the sun too long or something. And that's not hard to do in Egypt. The skies are very cloudless in Egypt most of the time. Well, early the next morning, Scripture tells us when it became light, the brothers were sent on their way. They began their journey. They began their trip. And you can believe that these brothers were so grateful for the dawn. Let's get out of this city. They had seen as much as Mem of Memphis as they ever cared to see again in their lives. Of course, they had no idea that they would have to return again under the circumstances because later on they'll be told that this is only the second year of a seven-year drought. <laughs> They've already been twice. Uh, so they could count on coming back several more times, but they had no idea that that would happen. And so they were hoping that this was the last time they'd ever see the snow-white walls of the city of Memphis. And as they walked, led their donkeys out of town, and as they passed through the walls, and as they began heading back for Canaan, uh, I don't know, they may have every once in a while looked back to say, oh boy, the walls are shrinking, they're, they're going to be gone, we don't have to see this place again. That probably was in their minds. It was the hope of their heart. But you'll notice the orders that Joseph give, gave to his steward. Ride after them. Now, I don't think, even though the scripture doesn't say so specifically, I don't think Joseph was, sent his steward out there as a single man to ride after him. I think he sent with him a military detachment. This has got to look official. This has got to look serious. And so here he goes with this military detachment out of the city, riding on horseback to overtake the brothers. And when he, was to, when he overtook the brothers, Joseph instructed him exactly what to say. And we read that in, at the end of verse 4. Why have you repaid evil for good? This is what he's to say to the brothers. Is not this the one, referring to the, the ceremonial cup, the bowl, 
from which my Lord drinks and which he indeed use, uses for divination. You have done wrong in doing this. He knew exactly what to say. He had been given these words by Joseph. And so he rode out through the gates with this military detachment, with all the pride and pomp of an Egyptian security force, if you will, out after these ten innocent brothers. Okay, verse 6 of chapter 44. So he overtook them and spoke these words to them. And they said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money which you found in the mouth of our sacks we have brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever your servants, of your servants it is found, let him die, and we also will be my Lord's slaves. So he said, Now let it be according, also be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then they hurried. Each man lowered his sack to the ground. Each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and when each man loaded his donkey, they returned to the city. I think this is really important in reading over that passage and trying to understand it to try to put ourselves into the place of one of those brothers. And consider what you've been through, consider what you so desperately hoped for, and then to have this happen. Well, the steward may have thought what he had been ordered to do up to this time was pretty strange. Put the silver back into each of the sacks, you know, both, both amounts of money, the amount they brought back from the first time, as well as their second payment, all put in the sacks, and then put his special bowl in Benjamin's sack. But now, <laughs> to be told to ride after them and to accuse them of theft, the steward undoubtedly, if he hadn't been made privy to all of this, had to believe that Joseph is acting totally out of character. This is not the Joseph I've worked for for lo these several years. It would seem that Joseph would have had to at this point brought his steward into his confidence in order to get the steward to seriously carry this thing out. <laughs> to do it with any conviction. To not laugh. <laughs> You know, think, this is what he said, you know, I've got to bring you guys back. Of course, it could have been dangerous for him to do that. But nevertheless, some of you may have historically worked for someone you weren't sure was playing with a full deck of cards. <laughs> uh, and this is probably the thought the steward had, unless he was informed about what was going on here. These brothers, as I mentioned before, were intent on getting out of Egypt as quickly as possible. So think, they're, they're walking their donkeys, they're walking down the road, 
the main route that will take them over to the Via Maris and take them out over across the top of the Sinai and back into Canaan. And suddenly they hear hoof beats behind them. You know, a military detachment is coming. They hear this thundering behind them and they turn around to look and see what it is and they see Joseph's steward. And their hearts, which were beginning to rise as they were leaving, <laughs> their hearts had to sink to the lowest abyss as they saw this man coming. Will this nightmare never end? Had to be their thought. What in the world is going on here? And of course, when he made this accusation against them, they reacted with true innocence, with astonishment, and with hurt. They couldn't believe it. <laughs> Can you imagine a little bit now that there would be a test of the measure of faith that had developed in their hearts towards God? Well, we'll discover as we get further on in this chapter how that, that impacted their hearts and how they reacted to that. Uh, and, and Judah will be the spokesman, wonderful spokesman uh, for the brothers. Now, each one of them knew that the other was not so stupid as to steal something out of Joseph's house. I mean, after all, they had brought the money back from the first time. They didn't have to do that. They could play it innocent and just brought it back but made it the second payment. <laughs> they brought the money back. They had shown it to the steward. They certainly had told Joseph about it. You know, anybody and everybody who'd listen, they told about it. And for them then, after they had done this, to prove their integrity, to prove their honesty, to steal something out of Joseph's house, to do something that might cause suspicion on the part of this capricious ruler? No way. They would never do such a thing. I mean, these were intelligent men. There was no way they would put themselves in jeopardy. And they made this point very, very clear to the steward. And notice how convinced they are. They're so convinced that this is a ridiculous charge that they made the rash statement that is made there in verse 9, where we read, With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die, and we also will be my Lord's slaves. <laughs> I mean, that's putting it out all on the table. I mean, they're, they're dedicating their entire future. If, if you will, they're betting everything on the fact that they had not stolen this cup. Now, if I had been them, I probably would have done the same thing. But knowing what I know about the passage and what happened, you would say, but you know, somehow that money got in your sack the first time. And you didn't know how it got there. Now, this could happen. Don't be so rash. It could have been Reuben here who was the guy who instigated this statement. Remember, he, he's the one who made a similar statement a long time back when he wanted to be responsible for taking uh, Benjamin back. He said, well, if I don't bring Benjamin back, you can kill my sons. You know, as if 
Jacob would get some pleasure out of killing his grandsons because his son didn't come back. Kind of a warped way of thinking. Uh, but, of course, we can understand what, Joseph, what Reuben was doing. He was simply pledging himself with the greatest uh, statement of, of pledge he could make, really. And it just was, it was a little bit of a, a foolish thing to say. And that's why later on, Jacob would refer to Reuben as unstable as water in his character. Well, the steward accepted the challenge. Only he modified it. He said, no, no, nobody's going to die, but that one with whom it is found will be my slave. The rest of you can go free. Now, that was a major modification from what they had proposed. But, of course, he could make it because he knew exactly where the bowl was. Well, can you imagine the, in, the, the indignant attitude of the brothers to be accused of this? They pulled their sacks down off their donkeys and they opened them up to show this steward that they were not guilty of this. Well, as Reuben's sack was opened and there was no bowl, that was good, but there were two sacks of silver. And as he went to the second brother, Simeon, and opened his, and then to Levi, and then to Judah, and the scripture says he went down the line from the oldest to the youngest. Now, how did he know the order? Well, remember, it was in the last account where they all sat at dinner, at lunch, actually, and Joseph had set them down in the order of their ages. And, and they knew that that couldn't just accidentally happen. And we talked about the probability of that being 40 million to one of anybody accidentally seating in, the, in that particular order. And so he knew the order of their ages. And so he looks. Now what this does, you know, is prolong it. He could have gone right to Benjamin's sack and thrown it open and said, here it is. Now that looked a little suspicious. <laughs> How'd you know? Uh, so he starts with the oldest and he works his way down and the drama mounts. Each one opens. There are his two sacks of silver. The first payment and the second payment. And, and so you can imagine that the wind began to disappear out of their sails as it were, as this money was found. And then, when Benjamin's sack was opened and the two bags of money were found and the silver bowl, all of the brothers were totally deflated. I mean, their emotional energy was gone and their hopes for the future evaporated with it. Of course, Benjamin, you, you know, he doesn't say it there, but you can be sure he denied taking the bowl. I don't know how it got there. I didn't touch the bowl. You guys all saw me. You were with me the whole time. And I think they believed him. But whether they believed him or not, what happens next is the key to the whole thing. Scripture says they tore their clothes. And that, as we already know, was typical of the ancient Near East of the culture of that day as an expression of remorse, of, of pain, of anguish, to tear your clothes, to indicate that something horrible has happened. And sometimes they would throw ashes on their head and sit in a pile of ashes as Job did. Today we just go around looking for a shrink to <laughs> help us. Might be better for us to sit in a pile of ashes. <laughs> 
sometimes. Slowly, without any enthusiasm at all, they reloaded their donkeys. Grain back up on the donkey. And res with resignation, they headed back towards the city they had hoped to never see again. Memphis. I think they moved with the leaden feet of condemned men. There was no spring in their step. Just moments before, with their backs towards Memphis and their hopes rising, they had been moving north. Now they had to turn about and head back south with their hopes shattered. You know, whenever we face a situation which seems to be going so contrary to our greatest hopes, we should remember this situation. These men very probably thought they would never see their families again. It was all over. They would be slaves in Egypt. And I think some of them felt rightly so because of what we did to Joseph selling him into slavery. Although they certainly felt that their world had come to an end, they, in reality, had just passed the supreme test. Sometimes that's the way God works. We think it's all, you know, we're against the wall. And it's all over. We have no hope. But in God, we have everything to hope for. And he has looked upon us and we have passed the test. And he's now able to use us on a higher plane than ever before. Because we have been obedient. Because we have done what he's asked us to do, even though it was hard. And even though we didn't understand the meaning of it all. Twenty years before, these same ten brothers had cold-heartedly sold Joseph into slavery, knowing that the news that Joseph might possibly be dead or was dead as far as their father knew, would bring great anguish to their father. And yet they did it almost flippantly. Now they had a second opportunity. They could have said to the steward, okay, take him. We don't want him anyway. You take him, and, and we'll, we, we're getting out of here. We're going. You take him, and we will be on our way. They had their opportunity to get rid of the other preferred son, the late, later Joseph, if it were, if you could say that. You know, Joseph's true brother, the second son of the beloved Rachel. They could be rid of him. So that Jacob would have no one to focus his, his, his heart and his love upon other than the ten brothers of the less desired wives. So the question is, would they abandon Benjamin to save their own necks? Would they callously return to their father with the news that they knew could kill him? We couldn't bring Benjamin back. He's a slave in Egypt. Think Jacob could have survived that? Well, they weren't sure, 
and they were not going to find out. Absolutely, there was not a question. I don't believe there was a question in the heart of any one of those brothers but what they would go back. I don't think it was just Judah saying, let's go back, boys. I think they all were in agreement. We must go back to Memphis. The process had been slow and the process had been hard, but these ten brothers were changed men. Is the process slow and hard in our own lives? I think if we're honest, we'll have to say so. There are those who wish to short-circuit spiritual growth. There are those who want God to do some kind of a, a, a miraculous thing that will change you from this level of spirituality to this one and just leap right up there and pass all these other stages along the way and not go through the hurt and the hardship and the lessons that are needed for us each step of the way to grow strong in the Lord. The Christian life is a walk. It's not a pogo stick, uh, you know, process. Uh, we don't leap from one stage of spirituality to the next and leave out all the hardships in between. We must walk the path. When Jesus walked what is known as the Via Dolorosa, he walked every single step himself. He wasn't carried by the angels from, from the uh, flat place of flagellation to the base of the cross. He had to walk through the streets of Jerusalem. He had to listen to the heckling of some and the tears of others as he carried the cross every step of the way. You and I, in our Christian walk, must walk each step ourselves. We can't short-circuit any of it, even though we'd love to. We'd love to just go out on a hilltop and say, God, make me into the man you want me to be without all that process. And, you know, God could do it. But it wouldn't be for our good. Because then we would look at others who are going through the hardship and say, what's the matter with you people? Just go out on the hilltop and do this and it'll happen. God doesn't do these things in, in some kind of a way that we can point out this is the way it's always got to be done. God's totally at, at his own freedom to do what he will in each of our lives. And I would say that for everyone who actually grows day by day in the Lord, it is a moment by moment process. It is not a, you know, jumping to another quantum level, if you will, of spirituality. And so it would be with these brothers. They had gone through a hard 20 years. And even though the last few months had been harder than any of the previous 20 years, probably, it nevertheless was a day-by-day -day process. What these tw 10 brothers had come to realize was that a life of sin and guilt is not worth living. Every time I, I think about, for example, people who live a life of crime, you know, members of the mafia, just to take an example, how can you live that way? Now, what is life? I mean, to me, there would be no joy, no peace, no, no nothing. I mean, it wouldn't be worth living if, if you were living a way of crime. Of course, your mind gets so distorted that, that you don't know anything else and you think it's great, I suppose. But it, it, just, you know, it just isn't worth living. And so these brothers came to realize. They decided 
they would all suffer the fate of Benjamin rather than abandon him. Was this different? <laughs> Was this different than the situation with Joseph? Where they coldly sold him off in Egypt and said, good riddance, I hope we don't ever see the brat again. Yeah, it's different, all right. They could not return to their father Jacob with the words that he so greatly feared. With the reality of what he felt would happen and the reason he didn't want Benjamin to go in the first place. That he wouldn't come back. So, there are five triumphant words in this passage. Did you note them? Five triumphant words. They are at the end of verse 13. They returned to the city. Those are the words of triumph in this passage. So easily overlooked. But those words express the reality of the change that had occurred in their hearts. When God truly works in the heart of a person, a human being, the reality of that change is not shown in words only, but in action. And it's really important that we remember that. If a person claims that God has done a great work in their lives, but you see no change in their lifestyle, you begin to wonder, whether the professed work has any meaning. Or are we just talking about a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal here? We have a lot of those today, I'm afraid. There are many who claim that in order to be a Christian, all you have to do is make a profession of faith and, and maybe follow it up with baptism, but, but that's really all there is to it. Well, those of you who have ever spent much time listening to J. Vernon McGee, when he was alive, and of course, he's still on the radio, even though he be long dead. Uh, he had a word for that, or uh, two words for that. He called that theology easy believism. I, I don't think he coined that, but anyway, he used it quite a bit. The idea that you, all you have to do is make a profession, maybe get baptized, and, and that's it. You're in like Flynn. But the scripture makes it clear that faith and love, are proven by obedience, not by mere profession. In Hebrews 5.9, we read this. He, this is Christ, became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. For whom did Christ become the source of eternal salvation? For those who obey him. Not just with their mouths make a profession, but back up their profession with action, as James so clearly says in his epistle over and over again. In John 14, 15, 14, we read these words of Jesus. You are my friends, meaning my true disciples, if you do what I command you. If you do what I command you. The brothers could have returned to Canaan without Benjamin. They were offered that by the steward. I'll just take Benjamin. You, the rest of you can go. You're free. No guilt associated with this. You can go back to Canaan. So they could have done that. 
And they could have professed before Jacob and before God, it's not our fault. We didn't take the cup. The little Benjamin did. And he's responsible for his own problem. Benjamin got caught with a man's silver bowl. We didn't have a thing to do with it. We're honest men. We're men of integrity. They could have done that. And they probably could have calmed their own consciences by, you know, in the process. But again, the reality of our position is proven not by mere profession, but by demonstration. They could have said, but look, we are the inheritors of the covenant. And how can we inherit the covenant if we're slaves in Egypt? God's whole plan will go awry. So we can't do that. So we just got to sacrifice Benjamin and go back to Canaan. They could have done that. And they probably could have made excuses within their own minds for why they did that. When we think about Jesus, did Jesus come into the world to only profess his love for us? Jesus could have walked this earth and said, I love you, I love you, I love you. And then been taken up by angels back into heaven. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus demonstrated his love not only through the miracles of compassion, but by dying, of course, on a Roman cross. And, and that is made a point so clearly by Paul in Romans. I'll just turn to it. I don't have it on the outline there, but Romans 5.8. Certainly you remember this passage. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, God could profess from now to the end of time that he loved us and never done anything to prove that love, and it would not have changed the world. But God demonstrated his love towards us by sending Christ to die a horrible death that we might know the reality of that love and then in turn demonstrate that love to others. It's the demonstration of that love which is so important. And that's what Charles Colson is saying, for those of you who are coming on Sunday night and listening to the videos. That's what he's saying. I mean, we may not agree with everything he says about you know, who, who, who's doing this and that, but the basic core of what he's saying is absolutely true. And, and that is our love as true believers must be demonstrated in the church universal. Now, we may not agree with every church particular. We may not agree with the theology of this church or the theology of that church. But we must count as brothers and sisters in Christ those who are truly part of the church universal, whatever their human label. Because God only knows their hearts. We don't. Of course, we can look at their lifestyle. That's what John Calvin said, you know, one of the ways by which you determine whether somebody is, is really a believer, even though he said God only knows for sure, but one way by which the church can determine it is to look at a person's lifestyle. That'll tell something. Uh, that'll tell a lot about whether the person is a true believer or not. But it isn't up to us to judge others' relationship to God. 
but it's up to us to love those who are of the brotherhood, who hold to the core truths of Jesus Christ uh, as Savior, Sanctifier, Healer, Coming King, as the one who died on the cross and rose again and rules in heaven, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in triune uh, action towards us. These are the basic verities of the faith. And if somebody believes that you're baptized by being poured, and somebody believes you're baptized by being sprinkled, and somebody else believes you're baptized by immersion, that doesn't make or break the, the church. You know, the amount of water, the number of square inches covered by water, is not the key factor in baptism. And, and it shouldn't be what divides churches. Unfortunately, it often is. But God demonstrated his love. And so must we. If the brothers had abandoned Benjamin at this point, any hope that they would have had of inheriting the covenant would have been without foundation, without base. And God would have had to find, find 12 other men, if it were possible. You know, I mean, God can do anything, but... We're looking at it from hindsight, as it were, 12 other sons of Israel. <laughs> but God would have found another way. But God put it in their hearts to be men of obedience. And is this a small matter? Does it really matter who the 12 patriarchs of Israel were? Is that important? Well, let me uh, just turn to the 21st chapter of Revelation, I think it's of eternal importance. In the 21st chapter of the book of Revelation, down in the uh, 12th verse, talking about the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, the holy city, it had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and at the twelve gates, twelve angels. And names were written on them, which are those of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. So is it or was it important that it be Simeon and Levi and Reuben and Judah and, and Zebulon and Naphtali? It was eternally important because their names are forever inscribed on the gates of the holy eternal city. So we're not talking about a moot point here. God is faithful. And he kept these men faithful in spite of their sin and disobedience. He brought them back through a long, arduous process to a place where, as we'll look at next week in the next passage, where Judah demonstrates a true Christ-likeness in the words that he says and in the actions that he takes and the attitude that he, that he displays on behalf of the ten. These are not the boys that Joseph had known as a teenager. It's as if he had walked into a totally different family. They have been, been so radically transformed by the faithful, sovereign God. And that needs to be your prayer and my prayer for our own lives for our children, our grandchildren, our brothers, our sisters, our parents, whatever all, that God will so radically transform them that they will walk in obedience as these brothers did. I mean, can you be any worse than they were? 
to viciously plan to kill your own brother? Not much worse you can be or do. And yet God brought them to this place. So that means there's hope for all of us and for everyone. And that needs to be the focus of our prayer.